In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today we got the highly anticipated February non-farm payrolls number. And before the number came out, a lot of people were already prepared for a miss. And even though the expectation was for 230,000 jobs, there were a lot of analysts that were potentially bracing themselves for a miss, maybe low 200,000, maybe even uh, 190,000. The reason, of course, being the cold weather. And so Wall Street was already ready to dismiss any negative number as being just weather-related. So they, had, they were hedging their bets before they got the number. But, of course, there were other reasons to suspect that this number wouldn't be as strong as people thought. I mean, we had been getting a lot of negative economic data recently, including just yesterday with respect to jobs. We got the weekly unemployment claims that came out, and it was a jump to 320,000. That was the second week in a row that we were above 300,000. People were expecting the rate to fall off. Instead, it rose, and now it's at the highest level in 10 months. We also got the Challenger report for February job cuts. Better than 50,000 announced layoffs in the month of February. That's the second consecutive month of more than 50,000 layoffs, according to Challenger. In fact, year to date, right, you got two months into the year, but we're already 19% ahead 
of last year's layoff pace. And supposedly, this is the year where the economy is strong enough uh, for the Fed to raise rates, yet we're laying off 19% more people this year than last. Uh, We also got fourth quarter productivity. That number dropped uh, by a greater than expected 2.2%. Even Greenspan's been out there talking about how productivity is a problem, and yet it continues to fall. But probably the most bearish of the numbers we got yesterday was factory orders which fell for the sixth consecutive month, right? This is rare. The last two times that we had factory orders fall six months in a row, the U.S. economy was already in recession. It happened in 2008 and happened in 2001. So we already are seeing economic data points that you only see during recessions. Now, that can mean one of two things. One, the U.S. economy is already in recession, or... If this is how bad our recovery is, if we're in recovery, yet factory orders are this bad, imagine what's going to happen when we go to a recession. Because clearly, you know, we're going to have another one. We haven't repealed the business cycle. So to me, you know, it shows you how weak the data is. And of course, almost all the data points that we've received so far in 2015 have been negative, with a few exceptions, one being the jobs numbers. Because the jobs numbers uh, for January were better than expected, and they were better than expected again for February. Let's get right to the report. According to the government, 295,000 jobs were created in February, much higher uh, than the consensus. They did revise last month down a little bit from 257 to 239. No one really talked so much about that. Uh, but they uh, this month was 295 versus 230 estimates, and this is great news. The unemployment rate also went down to 5.5 percent. Remember, it had ticked up a percent last time uh, to 5.7, and so now it came all the way back down to 5.5, which I think ties uh, or is a new record low. I think the direct the, the low before was 5.6, at least for this for this cycle. So it was the low unemployment number and the bigger non-farm payroll number that everybody was excited about. Uh, the dollar had a huge run today. New highs across the board for the year for the move. Multi-year highs, again, you know, against uh, the euro. Gold was down about $30. You know, the stock market did not like this number. And I'm going to get back to the number in a minute. But, you know, on the stock market, the market had been rising on non-farm payroll days. And, in fact, if you go back over the last year, the market was actually doing better on when the number beat. So a a supposedly good jobs number was good for the stock market. When the jobs number missed expectations, when we didn't create as many jobs, the stock market still went up, but by not nearly as much. Well, today we had a beat, right, stronger than expected jobs numbers, And the Dow closed off almost 300 points. I mean, 278, I think. It was down about 300 on the lows. Uh, Very weak day. The weakest, technically, was the NASDAQ. Because the NASDAQ, you know, traded above 5,000 for the first time in 15 years on Monday. It closed above 5,000, too. Uh, But it closed not only down on the week, but it was an outside week where we took out last week's high and closed below last week's low. Now, from a technical pattern, that is called a key reversal, and it's a very bearish sign 
for that index. As a result of today's sell-off, both the S&P 500 and the Dow are basically flat on the year. They're slightly above where they closed the last trading day of 2014. And basically, we could surrender all the gains when trading resumes next week. And it's also interesting that it happened on a day where the non-farm payroll beat. So now, good news isn't good news. Good news is bad news. Because everybody believes that the Fed is going to raise interest rates now in June based on this number. And I think one of the reasons the market had been rising recently was because more people were coming to my way of thinking, at least about June rate hikes, thinking that they were off the table because the economic data had been so bad that people were thinking, well, the Fed is going to wait. But now that they've got this jobs data, everybody's convinced that they're going to move in June. Well, I don't know why. I mean, there's nothing about this data that should change the Fed's mind. I mean, it's the same type of jobs numbers we've been getting all year long. And so if the Fed wasn't you know, about to raise rates based on the January number, which it clearly wasn't based on Janet Yellen's most recent testimony, why should it raise it now? I mean, there's nothing remarkable about this number. I mean, it's the same old, same old as far as I'm concerned. So if the Fed wasn't going to jack up interest rates a year ago or six months ago, this isn't going to change their mind. I mean, let's actually delve more deeply into the numbers. First of all, the labor force participation rate went down from 62.9 to 62.8. Now, the lowest it's been you know, since the 1970s is 62.7. And, of course, we put that in recently. So we're almost back to the lows in labor force participation. Average hourly earnings were only up 0.1%. That's half of the 0.2% that had been expected. So wage growth is non-existent. And labor force participation is going down. I mean, this is not a good sign. If the economy was strong, some of those people that had you know left the labor force uh, should, should have come back in. In fact, the number of people not in the labor force hit an all-time record high. In fact, this is a very interesting statistic that for every one person that entered the labor force, three people left, right? 96,000 new people came into the labor force, but 354,000 exited the labor force. So the labor force is shrinking. The number of Americans not working is rising. This is not a sign of a strong economy. This does not bode well uh, for tax revenue or government deficits when all these people are no longer in the workforce. Now, people on television, Mark Zandi was on CNBC saying, oh, this is about the baby boomers retiring. No, it's not. This isn't about people retiring. This is about people, you know, just retiring from working, not retiring because they're 65 and, you know, they they, they don't want to work anymore. They're just thrown in the towel. They're just deciding that they don't want to work because either they can't find a job or, you know, being on the dole is is more lucrative than having a job. But these are not older people retiring. The, the, The baby boom is too broke to retire. People in their 50s are staying in the labor force longer. We have record numbers of people working in their 70s or you know 80s. They don't want to work. They, they have to work. The problem is younger people that can't get jobs. So that's the reason that the unemployment rate dropped, because 354,000 people left the labor force. That's why the unemployment went down 
uh, two-tenths. But think about this. The total number of jobs created was 295,000. Now, if only 96,000 people entered the labor force, what is that telling you? How do you create 295,000 jobs for 96,000 people? Well, what it means is that a lot of the people who got jobs were already in the labor force and already had jobs. In other words, a lot of the jobs are second jobs. Right? People have one part-time job and they got another part-time job. That's what's going on. The, the numbers don't you know, differentiate how many hours you work in your job. When they're talking about the jobs being created, if you get a job and you get one hour a week, that's a job. That's one job as far as the statistics is concerned. Because I think that that's what's going on. Because most of the people who left the labor force, they weren't, they didn't have jobs and quit, which is what you would do if you're retiring, right? If you're retiring, you know, you, you quit your job. You're working and then you retire. I think most of the people who left the labor force were unemployed. And then they took themselves out of the labor force, which is why the unemployment rate went down. Because if somebody quits a job and leaves the labor force, that doesn't affect the unemployment rate because they were never unemployed. But if you're already unemployed and then you leave the labor force, that reduces the unemployment rate. But if you're unemployed and leave the labor force, you're not retiring. You just gave up looking for a job. It's only if you have your job and quit it. And don't look for another one that you can say, well, it's the baby boomer retiring. So what's really going on is people who are not in the labor force are leaving the labor force. So the unemployment rate goes down. And we have some people that join the labor force, but not nearly as many as the jobs were created. And the only real explanation for that difference can be that these are second jobs. Now, there's another explanation, and it has to do with the birth death model, right? 45% of the 295,000 jobs that the government claims were created in February, they have no proof that they were actually created. They are added into the numbers based on what the government calls the birth-death model. And that number this month was 132,000. So 132,000 jobs out of the 295,000 were just assumed to have been created by the businesses that the statisticians at the, at the Bureau of Labor Statistics assume were started up. Now, what makes them so sure that 132,000 people were hired by startups in the month of February? You know, especially with all that cold weather out there and all that snow, right? I thought, how are they supposed to start up all these businesses? Now, I think this is where just the bias comes in. Because these are all assumptions, right? And, and, and they're only as good as the people who are making them or as accurate. Now, if you work for the Department of, the, of Labor Statistics, you work for the government, you believe the economy is strong. Everybody in the government, right? Everybody's talking about how strong the economy is. This is the greatest economy, you know, in, in, in a generation. I don't know what, you know, everything is great. Unemployment is down, right? The Fed's ready to raise rates. You know, we're, we're the only strong economy in the world. So everybody is so optimistic. Well, optimistic statisticians are going to assume that businesses are being created in this great economy. After all, right, in a good economy, You would expect businesses to be created. So since the government workers believe it's a good economy, they believe businesses have been created. And so they assume they've been created, and they assume they hired people. But what if these assumptions are wrong? What if the economy is much weaker 
than these government bureaucrats think. Well, then these new companies aren't starting up. In fact, it's possible that old companies are going out of business, that they're failing, that more companies are dying than being born. But the government isn't assuming this. They don't realize that that companies are dying because they think the economy is strong when it's actually weak. And a weak economy wouldn't be creating a lot of new businesses. It would be destroying the old businesses. But all of this is based on an assumption. And I think that makes a lot of sense because almost all the economic data that comes out is negative with the exception of the jobs numbers. But there's so much bias and so much assumption in the way these numbers are calculated that there's a lot more room for error than in a lot of other numbers where they just count things up, right? So if there's an outlier here, it's in the jobs numbers. You know, on CNBC today, they have Mark Zandi. You know, you know, he, he, he was talking about the disconnect between the weak GDP and the weak jobs. And in his mind, well, he says, at some point, years from now, they're going to come back and revise upward the GDP. Because to him, he thinks, well, since the jobs numbers are so strong, the economy must be a lot stronger than the government thinks. Well, to me, it's more real, realistic that these jobs numbers are wrong. And they're going to get you know, revised downward because we have so much bad economic news. The jobs news is really the only good news. So that's the outlier. So what makes more sense, that all the other news is wrong and that the job data is right or that all the other news is, is right and the job data is wrong? That makes a lot more sense, especially when you think about all of the uh, assumptions. I mean, here's one in particular. You know, we got the challenger number out yesterday about layoffs right, in February. And according to this private you know, estimate, they claimed that over 16,000 jobs were lost in the oil and gas industry. That makes sense, right? The rig count is plunging. Oil prices are way down. The, the energy sector is really cutting back on their employees. Well, how many jobs do you think the government assumed were lost in February in the oil and gas sector? 1,100. 1,100. I mean, so the government says we lost 1,100 jobs. Challenger says we lost more than 16,000. Who's right? You know, to me, it's much more likely that Challenger got it right. I mean, it makes a lot more sense that more than 1,100 people lost their jobs in the oil and gas sector, given the collapse in uh, drilling that's taking place. And so there's two, this raises two concerns. One, you know, well, how did the government get such a low number? Obviously, they're missing uh, some job losses that they're not taking into consideration because clearly uh, their number is way wrong. It's way too low. There's a lot more people who lost their jobs than they're counting. So that's number one. But number two, if they got the jobs wrong in the energy sector, what does that say about the accuracy of the rest of the report? Because clearly they got the jobs numbers wrong in oil and gas, right? Well, if they're wrong in oil and gas, then maybe they're wrong about everything. I mean, maybe you could just take this whole jobs data and throw it out because it's unreliable. It's very suspect, not only based on all the other data that we get that's negative, but based on what we can see. It doesn't make any sense that they're missing these jobs. So to me, it's all an outlier. Yet Wall Street puts all their stock in this number. As if, aha, this is proof because, you know, the Fed keeps talking about jobs. But if you if you listen to what Janet Yellen most recently said, she says we need to see a big improvement in the jobs picture. This report doesn't show that. It shows the labor force participation rate falling near a record low. Hundreds of thousands of people leaving the labor force. Wages stagnant. 
Uh, this is, again, the same old, same old. You know, this, eventually, right, all the people who left the labor force need to come back in. These are not elderly people uh, playing golf in retirement. These are able-bodied people in their 20s and 30s that should be working but who are not. And if we actually had a strong economy, the labor force participation rate would be growing as these young Americans, you know, re-entered the workforce. The fact that that's not happening, that it's still shrinking, is a sign of a weak economy and that the unemployment rate does not tell the real story, especially when so many people are underemployed. Right? I mean, because if you pass laws, which we've done with Obamacare, that basically tells employers – Get rid of your full-time workers, replace them with part-time workers. By definition, they're going to have to pull more people into the workforce if they're going to reduce the hours of all the people that they employ. So sure, we're going to create a lot of low-paying jobs, but that's not uh, how you build an economy, and that's not the result of a strong economy. So I don't see how anything changes, but Wall Street, everybody seems to think that this number is a game-changer. Of course, if the Fed really is going to raise interest rates in June, then what's going to happen to the stock market? It's going to keep going down. It's going to go way down. What's going to happen to the real estate market? It's going to go way down. What's going to happen to all the speculators that own properties? They're going to try to sell them. What about all the foreigners that bought up a bunch of properties? They're not buying anymore. They can't afford it with a strong dollar. If anything, they might want to list their properties for sale to take advantage of the huge gains that they're looking at in the foreign exchange. And the average guy, the first-time home buyer, he's barely in the market as it is. Well, higher mortgage rates will just, you know, that'll be the end of it. I mean, they'll be out completely. So the housing market starts to come down. And all these bad economic numbers are going to get even worse. In fact, now the first quarter GDP numbers, despite these supposed good jobs growth, now you've got the Atlanta Fed that's brought their estimate for first quarter GDP all the way down to 1.2%. You know, so how is, how is um, the government going to be raising rates into that weakened economy? And in fact, if the economy is already this weak without rate hikes, and now we start factoring them in, and the market goes down, the real estate market goes down, that's going to put even more downward pressure on this bubble economy. You see, this is the, these are the dots that nobody can connect. If you think the U.S. economy is strong, right, and then you think the Fed's going to raise rates, raising rates will, will put the economy back into recession. Because the only reason it looks strong is because rates are zero, because we've had all this QE. Right? That's why the economy looks like it's strong. If you then make the conclusion, well, it's strong so we can raise rates, then it's not strong anymore. You take away the source of its strength. Right? Now, it's not really a strong economy. It's a bubble. And if you stop blowing air into it, it deflates, right? which is what's already happening. Right? But people don't put two and two together. If the Fed raises rates, then the stock market goes down, the real estate market goes down, the economy's back in recession, then the Fed has to cut rates back to zero and do QE again. Well, if raising rates means they have to cut rates, then they can't really raise rates at all. That is the box they're in. But nobody uh, wants to stop and consider that. Now, the jobs data wasn't the only economic data that came out today. You know, we also got the trade deficit for January, which came out pretty much in line with estimates, maybe a little bit above some estimates. It was a slight improvement from the horrible number we had in December. 41.8 billion.
But I think this might have been affected by the port strike because I think the slowdown in the West Coast ports meant that we couldn't import as much stuff as we might have normally imported because there's not much exports going out of that, you know, those ports there. It's mostly imports coming in from Asia. And, and so probably that cut back on some of the imports. So I would think that the trade deficits maybe next month will make up for that. We'll have a bigger jump. But even with the slowdown and, you know, the backlogs in the West Coast ports, we still printed $41.8 billion in one month, which is a lot of red ink. You know, I think it's interesting, too, how everybody looks at this. I'm on the, the Bloomberg's uh, economic calendar website, and they're trying to explain, uh, you know, the relevance of the international trade. And I'm going to read from their, from their description what, what they write here. It says, exports grow when foreign economies are strong, right? And then it says, um, imports grow when U.S. economic growth is robust. Right now, so think about that for a minute. So they're saying that exports grow when foreign economies are strong. Well, why don't exports grow when our economy is strong? You see, a real strong economy would be churning out more production. Right, a strong economy would be producing more stuff and exporting it. See, whether or not foreign economies are strong or weak. In fact, if there are weak foreign economies and they can't produce as much, they would need to buy our stuff. So it's the strong economy that produces more than it consumes and has exports. But see, they got it bass backwards. See, they're saying that exports grow when overseas markets are strong. No. In fact, when overseas markets are strong, they produce more. Right. They might be, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll consume their own production. See, the whole idea is America doesn't even have factories. Right. We don't produce stuff. Um, it's just the overseas markets, because that's what they say here. They say that when imports grow, that's a sign that the U.S. economy is strong. No, it's not. It's a sign that our economy is weak. It's a sign that we're not producing enough of the things that we need. And so we have to pr- import the stuff instead because we can't produce it domestically. Now, what it usually is a sign of, of a bubble, yes, when we have to borrow more money and import the things that our weak economy can't produce, yes, it's a sign that we got a bubble. It's a sign that interest rates are too low, that the Fed is encouraging too much consumption. That's what it's a sign of. It's not a sign of real economic strength. If the economy was strong, we would be producing the things that we consume. The fact that we can't produce the things that we consume, the fact that we have to import them and borrow to pay for it is a sign of how weak the economy is. But Bloomberg doesn't even get that. In their economic reports, they're saying that growing imports is a sign of U.S. economic strength. No, it's a sign of U.S. economic weakness. The more we have to import, the weaker the economy. In fact, the trade deficit reflects that way in the GDP. When the trade deficit gets bigger, our GDP goes down. So at least the people who figured out the computation for GDP, they knew that if you're importing more than you're exporting, they subtract that from GDP. I mean, the way Bloomberg writes that, you should, they think you should add it. We should be adding the trade deficit and subtracting the trade surplus. But, of course, you know, we don't do it that way uh, because it is not a sign of economic strength. But, again, this is how the media, this is how everybody perceives of things today in the world where, you know, inflation is good, you know, trade deficits are also good. That's the way everybody, everybody thinks. But the number that came out later in the day that nobody seemed to pay attention to was consumer credit. And consumer credit actually declined. They were looking for 15 billion growth, and it only grew by 11.6 billion. 
And that was the slowest rate of growth since November of 2013, which to me, it's a good thing that consumers are taking on less debt. But the reason they're doing it is because the economy is so weak and they're so broke. I mean, if we really had a strong economy that was creating these new jobs, the way Americans typically respond is they go out and buy stuff on a credit card because now they have a job and so they figure they can afford it. The fact that uh, credit card that uh, consumer credit growth is slowing should be very problematic for people who are looking for the U.S. consumer to power GDP growth. And in fact, credit card debt actually fell. I mean, that's very rare, but credit card debt actually fell. And again, what that shows, we have this rising savings rate, and now we have a reduction in credit card debt. A lot of that is because of lower gas prices. Instead of spending this supposed windfall, from lower gas prices, Americans are saving the, this, the difference or they are not using their credit card as much. See, if people were so broke and they have to put gas on their credit card, well, now if gas is cheaper, they don't have to put as big a bill on the credit card. So it shows that Americans are simply borrowing less money to buy their gas because the gas is less expensive. Right. So there is no big windfall. But again, if consumers are flush with these new jobs, why aren't they spending the extra money? It's because it isn't extra money. It's just less money they have to borrow because they're barely making it. And, of course, the total level of debt continues to rise, albeit at a slower pace, mainly because of car loans and student loans. But, again, this is a bad sign that Americans keep on taking on student debt. You know, they're doing that despite the fact that most college grads are underemployed. You know, they're waiting tables and tending bar or whatever they're doing, yet now people are – borrowing money. In fact, I think a lot of people are just not even really in college for the education. They're in there for the loans. They just have to enroll in order to borrow the money. But the money is really going to their utilities and their rent and things like that. And then we have all this money that's being borrowed in car loans, even as delinquencies are soaring because we've got so many subprime auto buyers that are taking out you know, seven-year car loans. Imagine a seven years worth of payments on a car that, you know, I mean, well, how many people drive cars for seven years that actually drive them? And a lot of people, of course, are using 0% financing. And when they buy the car, you know, they're they're driving into the showroom with a car that maybe they have a $10,000 loan on. And the the value of the car is only $5,000. So they're already upside down. But then they buy a new $30,000 car. And the dealership says, well, we'll throw your negative equity into the loan. And we'll loan you $35,000 to buy this $30,000 car. And we'll give you seven years 0% interest. And so the guy says, that's a great deal. And he just just walks out the door with his brand new car. How many of these loans are going to go into default? A lot. You know, who knows? I mean, maybe maybe most of these loans, we'll see, could end up in default. But that's where a lot of this a lot of this debt is growing. But the fact that there's this big slowdown shows that the consumer is struggling. And all the other data suggests that he's struggling. Yet people want to focus in on these jobs numbers. And again, if you look at the jobs, right, most of the jobs that are being created are in these low-wage sectors. We only created, I think, 6,000, was it, manufacturing jobs? I mean, a tiny, a tiny number, right? Almost all the jobs, I think, better than half the jobs that were created. And, of course, 45% of them might not have been created at all, right, because they're just made up out of thin air, I said, with the, with the birth-death model. But assuming these jobs actually exist, which is a stretch, more than half of them 
are pretty low-paying jobs, right? They're in uh, the restaurant industry, right? They're people are waiters, waitresses, bartenders. They're working in hotels, right? They're uh, busboys or, you know, they're, they're bell bellboys or chambermaids or they work behind the, the counter when you check in, right, in hospitality. Uh, they're in retail, you know, they, you know, they're, you know, stock boy or stock girl or cashier, things like that. Uh, work, working at Walmart, a greeter. I mean, all, all you know, these the retail jobs, their jobs as teachers, hospitals, you know, orderlies, you know, you know, not, you know, when they have all these healthcare jobs, they're not doctors, you know, by and large. These are just people uh, that are doing uh, low skill work uh, in, 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 in healthcare. So these are where these are where the jobs are, and a lot of these jobs are part time, and even the ones that are full time don't pay very much. And meanwhile, the cost of living is still going up, despite the fact that people have a bit of a reprieve uh, with with lower gas prices. In general, uh, prices are going up, and so people you know people are are stretched. And of course, the last thing they can afford is a hike in their interest rate. When people have all these debt and they're surviving on credit. The, la- the, la- the least that they can afford is an increase in interest rates. And, of course, the, the government itself is the most vulnerable because if interest rates go up and it pushes the economy into recession, you get a double whammy for the government because now their tax revenues go down because it's a recession. They got more people collecting benefits, so the deficit gets bigger. But now the cost to finance the existing national debt as well as the new debt goes way up. And so the budget deficit skyrockets, which is another reason why they can't raise interest rates. But again, the whole world is living in this delusion, in this fantasy world where the Fed could raise interest rates and everything is going to be fine, even though the only reason that things haven't imploded is because rates are so low. Right? And we can, we, can, we can continue to pretend that we can afford to pay our bills as long as we don't really have to pay. But the minute we have to pay interest on the money we borrowed, well, then the fantasy comes to an end because we can't afford it. And of course, we totally can't afford to repay the loans. Right. Nobody wants to think about that. Right? We can no more repay our debt than Greece can repay its. But at least we can pretend that we will one day because we can make the interest payments. Right. You know, just like when people uh, bought houses, a subprime market in the housing bubble, they could afford the teaser rate. There's no way they could actually afford to, afford to repay the loan. But for a while, the people holding those subprime mortgages were happy just to get their monthly payments. But, you know, it hadn't occurred to them that the people who were making these monthly payments couldn't actually afford to repay the loan. So they can pretend for a while they had a piece of paper that had real value. But when the defaults started to come, that's when reality reared its head. The fact of the matter is they should have known that from day one. They should have known it going in that the debt was unaffordable. But they didn't. They were oblivious to it because all they looked at was, are we getting our monthly payments? Well, that's the same thing that's happening with the U.S. national debt. Yes, we're making our monthly payments. Thanks to the Fed's 0% interest rate and all this QE, we can afford those really low monthly payments on the, the enormity of our debt. But when those payments go up, well, we can't afford it, right? And then, you know, then people will be worried, just like they're currently worried about Greece. But, you know, in the meantime, the dollar continues to strengthen, and that means the whole world is on sale for Americans. Right? Assets all around the world in my favorite countries are getting a lot cheaper if you have dollars to pay for them. Now, the key is this sale isn't going to last forever. This is a 25 30% off sale, 
but it's going to close very quickly when reality sets in. It's all based on a set of assumptions that are completely wrong. Now, you might hear news stories where people will say, this could be a great summer to take a vacation, right? Take that European vacation, go up to Canada, go out to Australia, you know, go to South America, wherever. And yeah, your hotel room will be cheaper. Your restaurant meals will be cheaper. And yeah, it probably it is a good time to take a vacation like that, but it's a better time to invest abroad than vacation abroad because the vacation is over. You're there for a week or two and it's gone, right? But if you buy an asset, if you use your dollars, your overpriced dollars to take advantage of the sale on assets, on real estate, on plant and equipment, right, on real businesses that you can buy in these countries, that's permanent. It's not just a vacation that comes and goes. But you take advantage of the strength of the dollar now and buy these foreign assets. And then when the dollar collapses, you own these assets. And the fact that people are dumb enough to trade in their currencies for dollars at these ridiculous rates, all because people believe the Fed's going to do something that they can't do. They believe in the fiction that we can have higher interest rates and a robust economy simultaneously, which we can't. Because if the economy is a bubble and if it needs low interest rates, Right? Then it can't, you can't have the bubble and high rates. High rates are the pin that pricks the bubble. So we, we can't have a bubble with no air. The Fed can't take out the air and expect the bubble to stay inflated. It's like we can't be high and stop doing drugs. It's one or the other. Do we want to do high, want to be high? We've got to keep drinking drugs. If we don't want to tra- take drugs anymore, then we're not going to be high. We're going to have withdrawal. We're going to have a recession. People think that we can stop taking drugs and feel just as euphoric as we were when we were taking the drugs. It doesn't work that way. But in the meantime, people think that there is a huge disconnect. And, you know, as I said, the NASDAQ traded about 5,000 on Monday. The last time it did that was, what, 15 years ago? And if you remember, in less than two years, the NASDAQ was back at 1,000, 1,100. I mean, the NASDAQ shed 4,000 points in under two years, 80% of its value. And that whole rise up in the NASDAQ was based on a a, a misconception about the U.S. economy, about what was going on uh, in technology. It was about faith and confidence in the dollar and in the Alan Greenspan uh, Federal Reserve, where he was the maestro who could do no wrong, right? Well, we have the same situation today where everybody has confidence on our economy, in our markets with the NASDAQ 5000. They think Janet Yellen works, walks on water. She can do no wrong. They think the dollar is great. We're the safe haven. It's a repeat of the late 1990s, the same irrational exuberance, only more exuberant exuberance and even less ration, uh, more irrational than it was then. And things turned very, very quickly in the early 2000s. And they could turn as quickly, if not faster now. In fact, the U.S. is in so much worse shape than it was 15 years ago. And the misconceptions are even greater than they were back then. Uh, and, And so all the people are out there saying, oh, there's not a bubble, there's not a bubble. This is the biggest bubble yet. So how long do we have? I don't know. But I suggest that people take advantage of other people's foolishness, other people's uh, stupidity or their whatever you want to call it, in, investor irrationality, take advantage of it. You know, if you happen to have uh, an account with us at Europe Pacific Capital, you know, talk to your broker. Talk to your broker about taking advantage of this by adding to your account. Send new dollars in, and we can take those dollars and increase your ownership of international assets, of offshore assets, 
while the dollar is is so low. You know, if there's a stock, let's say, in Australia that's gone up 20% in the last year, but the Aussie dollar is down 30%, I'm just, I don't know, these aren't the exact numbers. I'm just making them up. But that stock isn't up 20%. It's down 10% if you got dollars to pay for it, right? So you can get assets on sale uh, by utilizing your dollars. And especially since I think the U.S. market, on a valuation basis, has never been as expensive today relative to the rest of the world. This is a record in overvaluation, and it's all a byproduct of this euphoria surrounding the U.S. economy that is completely misplaced. Right? I mean, it is, it is more misplaced than it was just before the 2008 financial crisis. I think investors are even more delusional now with respect to the real strength of our economy and what lies ahead than they were then. And you remember how badly, how wrong they were then. Well, they're even more wrong now. So I would send more money in and increase your holdings, uh, especially if you have money in the U.S. stock market. Now you, you got a twofer. You can kill two birds with one stone. You sell your U.S. stocks and get dollars and then sell your dollars and buy foreign assets instead. So that you, you, you kill two birds with one stone. You get out of an overvalued U.S. market and you get out of overvalued dollar and you get into uh, more fairly valued stocks and currencies that are likely to appreciate. And if you don't have an account at all, well, it'd be a good time to open one up. So just, you know, call up and talk to any of the brokers and get an account. Ask, you know, how you can profit from this, how you can protect uh, the value of your savings, your portfolio, but benefit right now from the fact that the dollar has risen so dramatically over the past 6 to 12 months, uh, despite the fact that the fundamentals really don't support it. It's all based on the Fed speak and the belief in what the Fed is going to do that is behind the rise. At the same time, you know, you've got uh, foreign central banks that are talking easy, and so it's the talk, uh, the jawboning that is, that is driving the directions of exchange rates, not really irrationality. And, of course, uh, we got the details of European QE this week, and that weighed on the euro, which spilled over into other currencies and the gold market. But, you know, I would be surprised if the eurozone was able to actually complete their program of quantitative easing uh, because their inflation rate might spike up a lot quicker uh, than people think, and that might force a premature end of this program. In the meantime, what they are doing is wildly distortive. Uh, to their economy, to their bond market. And in fact, if you think about that, right, all of the countries that are manipulating their interest rates where central banks are, you know, in there doing quantitative easing, uh, the world today, to me, I think has never been more socialistic and less free market, at least certainly in modern times, right? Because we don't have free market forces that are, determining interest rates, discovering prices. You have government bureaucrats, central bankers that are trying to centrally plan the economy and price fix everything. They're, they're trying to fix an interest rate, and they're going to buy as many bonds as they have to, regardless of their true value, to try to force the rate that they believe we should have. Right? Even when it comes to Europe, the ECB is willing to buy bonds and lose money. They're willing to buy bonds with a negative yield. Obviously, no, nobody would do that when you're guaranteed to lose money, but they don't care. They just want to do this. They want to manipulate uh, interest rates to force the markets to do things that if they were free, they would not do. So how anybody can think this is good and this is going to end badly, unless they're a socialist. I mean, if you really are a socialist and you believe in central planning and you don't believe in capitalism, then maybe you think this is going to work. 
But how anyone can pretend that they believe in capitalism, that they believe in free markets, and think this is going to end well, it doesn't make any sense. You can't be a capitalist and not think this is going to be a disaster. So there might be a lot of people who are socialists and don't want to admit it because they think this socialist experiment is going to work. Because this is, you know, this is not just one price. Because interest rates affect so much more. It's not like you just have a Politburo trying to set the, the price of bread and then you get a shortage of bread. This interest rates affect so much more of the economy. So the, the, the damage that they're doing here is so extreme. And the, the collapse is going to be so large because of all the malinvestments and misallocations that are resulting from this central planning. And the real sad part, the ironic part, is when this thing collapses in a spectacular fashion, as it will, worse than 2008, what are they going to say? They're going to say, look at how bad capitalism is. Look at what capitalism did to the global economy. We, we need more government, right? When capitalism had nothing to do with it. It was government central planning that inflated these bubbles, that caused all these distortions, that ultimately have to collapse. And then, of course, what's going to get the blame? Capitalism. What's going to be the solution? More government. Now, hopefully, hopefully uh, we won't make that mistake again. Uh, hopefully some of my podcasts might uh, help uh, you know, prevent that by being more evidence uh, that what really what really happened and, and where the real blame lies. So in that respect, you know, try to share these podcasts with as many people as possible so that we can get the truth out there. So when it hits the fan, at least some people know who to blame. And maybe those people uh, will be able to make a difference in the future path that this country takes. Hi, this is Peter Schiff. And long before foreign governments and hedge funds were buying gold by the ton, I urge my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams and How to Avoid Getting Ripped Off for Free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.